How are you guys doing today? Good. Um, I'm thankful that Rob prayed for clarity for me, um, probably because I uh, told him my schedule yesterday. Um, I, I was hanging out with Rosie at the hospital and uh, left around midnight. And as I'm leaving, my nurse is like, hey, don't forget to change your clock. I'm like, oh, no. And so uh, if there is any coherency, um, let us worship God for his spirit and the amazing work that it does. <laughs> Anyways, um, today we'll be talking about Mark 6, 1 through 6. Um, so let us pray, and then we'll get into it. Uh, dear Lord, I just thank you for... Uh, who you are. Um, God, I'm thankful for um, the new heart that we take on uh, when we believe in Christ. I'm thankful for what Christ did on the cross, and we just pray that uh, we can see um, the different aspects of Jesus throughout this text. We can see the response that Jesus gets, and um, we can take from that how we should respond. We love you, Lord. Amen. Um, so what we, we've been going through Mark, God restoring his wayward people, and uh, we've kind of just come off Jesus centering his ministry in Capernaum and in around the Sea of Galilee. Um, he's been cashing out demons, he's healed people, and we just last week heard about him uh, healing the, the sick woman and raising uh, Jairus' daughter. Um, and now he's heading to Nazareth, um, south of Galilee, and see the Sea of Galilee. And in the next six verses, what I hope we will be able to see is that a heart that believes the gospel through the work of the Spirit will be saturated with Scripture and will love people. Um, if you look at your bulletins, there's four points there. Um, again. Like I said, I was just sitting in the hospital, chilling with my daughter, and just reading through the text and going over things. And uh, the last two points um, just felt like it's just through the Spirit that we believe. And so those are actually combined. So you didn't miss anything if I skip over point three. Uh, you can just cross that off and, and just felt like the text most clearly communicates. Um, and the Bible most clearly communicates that it's through the work of the Spirit we believe. So we just merged those. Um, anyways, I told Rob at that, that like one in the morning, so I don't blame him for not putting that on the bulletin. Um, so anyways, um, a heart that believes the gospel through the work of the spirit will be saturated with scripture and will love people. And we're going to kind of work backwards, um, just because, um, we kind of see this play out backwards. Um, so point number one, a heart for people, uh, in Mark six, one, he went away from there and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. Um, so we know that Jesus' hometown is Nazareth. Um, this wasn't the place that he was born, but it's the place that, where he grew up. Uh, there's nothing really significant about Nazareth. Um, doing a little bit of research on Nazareth back then, it was kind of carved into a rocky hillside. Um, there's actually a lot of interesting stuff if you ever want to go read about uh, Nazareth, or even like just Jewish communities back in that time, and they found like tons of underground uh, storage areas and just lots of interesting things. 
um, linked to just the relationship between Rome. And again, I'm a history teacher, so I kind of nerd out about that stuff, but I won't add it all in here. Um, but it, it, it was fewer than 60 acres. I don't know if you can picture that in your mind. My father-in-law lives on like 50 acres. And so I was like thinking about his property and the entire town was nestled there. Um, fewer than 500 people. There really was no road that connected you to Nazareth. There was no like main road, which Nazareth was an offshoot of. So if you were going to go to Nazareth, it was because you wanted to go to Nazareth. Um, and we even see in John 1, 43 through 51, a conversation between Nathaniel and Philip when they're called as disciples. And uh, Nathaniel asks Philip, can anything good come from Nazareth? So clearly there's, well, if it's maybe it's small and just insignificant, or maybe it's known as, as just this like place you don't want to go to, whatever it is, the reason Jesus is going to Nazareth is because he wants to go to Nazareth. Um, it made me think of, so I'm from Mount Vernon, the Vern, it's about an hour north of here. And uh, if you live in Mount Vernon, you will be familiar with a town called Danville. I'm not trying to hate on Danville. Danville's fine. But you really don't go to Danville if you don't want to go to Danville. Um, probably the most, there's probably 500 people in Danville. Uh, the town, like the town center itself is probably less than 60 acres. And the most exciting thing that really happens there is a raccoon cook-off where they get raccoons and they cook them and they eat them. Not lying. Um, so I was just picturing Danville as I was thinking about Nazareth. Um, I got a, when I student taught, uh, before you student teach, you do like a, in the fall, you kind of do this, like once a week, go and figure out what you're going to be doing. And I was placed at Danville. And uh, praise God that I needed to take a couple more classes to raise my GPA because <laughs> I went an extra semester and I then got the student teach in Columbus and not in Danville. So anyways, um, I'm sure we can all picture some type of little town or, or somewhere close to where we're from uh, that may remind you of Nazareth. So we're, we're back to the question of why was Jesus going to Nazareth? Um, maybe it was to see family. Maybe it was to minister to people that he grew up with. Um, we know there was no political or economic benefit for Jesus going to Nazareth, which is all the more, if we really fast forward and we think about when the Jewish people were like celebrating Jesus as like the zealots were celebrating Jesus as this like political leader who was hopefully going to free them from, from their Roman bondage. Um, all the more evidence if uh, the main themes of the gospel, like his death on the cross and the fact they end up crucifying him is not enough evidence for you. All the more evidence Christ came to pay for our sins and not so much worried about this political earthly bondage. Um, as he went to Nazareth, because there's, I don't see a dominant political king spending time in Nazareth or uh, the remaining countryside. Uh, so whatever, whatever the main reason was for Jesus to go into Nazareth, we know that he was going to show love to the people of Nazareth. Um, and he doesn't stop there. He continues 
through the countryside. He goes from town, uh, it says in uh, the very end of this, um, and he went among the villages teaching. Um, so he was going from small town to small town to small town. Think about that for a second. One of the most, even, even if you're not a Christian, someone who has completely changed the course of human history, right? Even if we take, take, take a step back, and, and if you don't believe in Christ, um, you cannot deny the impact he's had on human history. He is going from small town to small town, the Nazareths, the Danvilles, if you will, and he is loving on those people. So, a heart that believes, right? If we kind of are working backwards, you're going to see an outflow, an outflow of a heart that is going to love people. Um, look at the disciples, right? The disciples clearly have their own preconceived notions of Nazareth in the conversation that we see between uh, Nathaniel and Philip in John 1, 43-51. But they follow Jesus. And so I think it's safe to say that following Jesus means loving people wherever Christ is going to lead you. And so what does that look like? What can we take away from this as we see Jesus go to the small, insignificant town and they go from small, insignificant village to small, in, insignificant village and the disciples following him to all these places? I think we should take away for our church, where is our church called to love people? Right? Where is God leading us? Clearly, we are planted here in Westerville and the greater Columbus area. And so as much as this is a call for our church to be loving people, it is also a question to our congregation, right? Where do you see a need for us to be active in loving people? Um, And I don't just mean, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, I don't just mean throwing money at different organizations that love people. How can we as a church actively be going to places where Christ is leading us? Um, This is something we should pray about, right? As a congregation, as a church community, we need to pray about where do we see a need, both in Westerville and Columbus and in our country and in the world. Where do we see a need and how can we love people there? Um, where are you and how are you called to love people, right? Think about yourself. What spheres of influence do you have? Um, I, I can look. We're a small congregation, and so a lot of people know a lot of people, and we know where we work, and, and we know uh, what we do. And so and in your job, um, with the people you interact on a day-to-day basis, uh, where are you called to love these people? And more importantly, how are you called to love these people? Because we're going to see Jesus go to Nazareth, and we're going to flesh this out a little more, but what we're going to see as Jesus goes to Nazareth is Nazareth is the way that he loves the people is by presenting them with these very true teachings, but they end up being very divisive. We even know from the first time that he goes to Nazareth, um, talked about in Luke, uh, they try to kill him right? There's a crowd of people that literally tries to kill Jesus, but Jesus is going there to show love to this community. So how are you called to love people 
in your sphere of influence? Is it to simply agree with or be buddy-buddy with everyone that you work with or be buddy-buddy with your family and just agree with them and, and, and be very, very kind? Yeah, we should be kind. We should be friendly. We should be nice. And in a very kind, loving, nice way, we should prevent, pre- present very kind, loving, nice truths. We can't control how people will accept these truths, but we are called to present them because that is love, right? If we ignore that, um, then we are not adequately loving. Um, Knowing when and where and how to love people goes hand in hand with knowing God, right? Um, We know that Jesus is God. He's part of the Trinity. Um, We are not, (laughs) So how do we know God? How do we know how to love people? How do we know where to love people? And that is through saturating ourselves with Scripture. The primary way that God has revealed himself to us is through his word. And we see Jesus model this time and time again. Um, So a heart that loves people will, and a heart that knows how to love people, will first be rooted in a heart for Scripture. Um, in Mark 6, 2, uh, we see, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What wisdom? Uh, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? We consistently see Jesus through Scripture, or throughout Scripture, show he is rooted in Scripture through his action and his words. Uh, we see him fulfilling uh, the, the laws of the Old Testament. Um, he is honoring the Sabbath. He is, if, if you just read through Mark, there's instances where you see Jesus in the synagogue teaching, finding rest with his Father. And I know you may be thinking, well, didn't the Pharisees accuse Jesus of not honoring the Sabbath? And I think we just need to remind ourselves, as Rob uh, gracefully pointed out three or four weeks ago, Jesus was so rooted in Scripture that he was able to differentiate between these rabbionic traditions that are not the point of Scripture and what Scripture actually was, what the text actually communicates about the Sabbath. Right? He was so rooted. He, know, he knew his Father so well that he was able to fulfill those. Um, we know that the Sabbath was made to find rest in God, uh, to find rest, and we see Jesus going to the synagogue on the Sabbath, teaching, spending time with his Father, finding rest. Um, we also see that his teaching is special and is rooted and saturated with Scripture. In Mark one twenty two, when Jesus uh, casts out the de- or nope, that is that is a different one. Mark one twenty two, when when Jesus is is teaching, the first time that he goes to the synagogue and teaches, the first time we see him in Mark. Um, the scribes and the people there were astonished because of the authority that he taught with. Um, It says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And if we remember, the scribes were people that were so well-versed, and they're like these, the, the modern day, like theological professors, right? They know the Old Testament, they know, uh, the scrolls and the, and of the prophets and things like that in and out. 
And Jesus taught with more authority and in a more special way than even them. In Luke 4, 16 through 21, the first time that he goes to Nazareth, we see him handed the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah, and he finds his spot, and he explains it to the people. And the only way that you would be able to do that is a knowledge of the scripture. Um, in John 14, 10 through 11, do you not believe that I am the fa- in the Father, and the Father is in me, the words that I say to you? I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. I wish we had time just to unpack the weight and, and the point of this verse. There's so much there that you could unpack, uh, but for the sake of time, uh, we're just going to take the point that Jesus is... The Father, He's rooted in the Father, uh, He's part of the Trinity, He knows the Father, we are not part of the Trinity, so how has God revealed Himself to us through Scripture? All the more evidence that we should be rooted in Scripture. Um, so our takeaway, as a church, um, I don't say what I'm about to say to be like an attaboy citizens, like good job, you're doing awesome. Um, but rather just a defense of the way that we have approached um, the way we teach. Um, as a church, one of the reasons we do a more, if you haven't noticed, we've been in Mark for a while now. Um, the, one of the reasons we do more of an expository type style of preaching is not because like, hey, look at us, we're awesome. Go citizens. That's not at all what I'm trying to communicate. Just the importance of knowing scripture so we can love people well, Right. That is, that is one of the reasons that we are just going through the text step by step, slowly, trying to just tear it apart and understand what it says. Again, I can't emphasize that enough. It's not attaboy citizens. It's we see an importance in this, and so this is why we do this in, uh, in the church, in our church. Um, it's a very good reason to be involved in community groups, and uh, soon we'll be having disciple, or Bible studies groups. Join those. Again, not so we can say, attaboy citizens church, look how big our community groups, look how many Bible says we have. That's not the point. We want to be a community that loves people well. And again, to love people well, we need to know scripture. And so one of the reasons we have these community groups, one of the reasons we have these Bible studies is so we can dive deeper into what scripture says and the commands that it has for our life. Um, And again, when I say knowing Scripture, I think that's something we need to unpack. If God wrote us a book about who He is, knowing Scripture is knowing God. It's worshiping God, right? It's not this legalistic approach to like, oh, I need to be in my Bible reading every day because then I'll earn some type of favor. That's not at all what it is. It's worship. Right? We are worshiping God. We're spending time with God. We're knowing God. Um, and then we should look at ourself. Um, I've said it. I'll say it again. If God wrote a book about himself, we should probably read it. Uh, we should know it. We should study it. Um, I think back a few years ago when I was in college, I was kind of just learning more about what Scripture says and, and more about what the Bible says about God. Um, there were instances where, and I'm not saying that's the only time in my life, but there was a major theme in my life where 
I knew I needed to read. I knew I needed to have a plan, but I didn't, right? My head was here, but my heart was not here. And there was this little, I don't know if you guys ever listened to those YouTube sermon jams. Um, I wouldn't suggest them for like the like main meat of your devotional or whatever. I mean, it's clips taken out of context from sermons, but there's some that can be very, very encouraging. And there's one by Matt, Matt Chandler uh, in, wh- in which he addresses, what do you do when your head knows what it wants to do, but your heart does not? I recently had a conversation with someone who uh, felt convicted about um, needing to be in, in a plan, needing to be in the Word, but their motives for doing that, they were unsure of. And what I would say to myself back in college, what I'd say to this person today, uh, praise God you have this conviction, right? Praise God the Spirit's working in your life. There's people that are, there's, there's people that are, walking around that don't even have this conviction. This is the Spirit working. And um, if you are worried about your motives, um, that doesn't mean don't open the Bible and read, right? Um, What Matt Chandler says in this little out-of-context sermon jam is, uh, what do you do when your heart, when your mind knows, but your heart's not there? He says, position yourself under the waterfall of grace, and wait while walking in obedience, right? That last part is really important, while walking in obedience. Your head knows what it needs to do, so do it. Make every effort you can to do it, and then pray. There's, in Psalms 42, you see David say, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. I'm not putting my hope in God. Come on, put your hope in God. Like, let's do it. <laughs> we need to do this, but I don't feel it. So don't not do it. Do it, make every effort you can, and pray that God breaks your heart. Pray that God shows you the need to be rooted in Scripture. And again, when we say rooted in Scripture, it's not this legalistic approach to Scripture. It's knowing God. It's loving God. It's worshiping God. Right? Walk in obedience. Uh, in Isaiah 40, the way uh, this last out-of-context sermon jam YouTube clip is wrapped up, uh, says, Isaiah 40, they who wait on the Lord, He will renew their strength. Right? Think about that promise. If you are in that spot, which I know we all are, and I know there will be times where you will be, right? That is so encouraging. They who wait on the Lord, He will renew their strength. So do it. Find a plan. If you don't have a plan, talk to Rob. Talk to someone else. Um, there's, there's many people in this congregation who can refer you to a really good reading plan, to um, some good commentaries. If you are looking for a commentary on Mark as we go through it, um, I've been read, reading through a couple. If you like old, uh, like almost Puritanesque language. The Matthew Henry commentary is great. Um, that can be a little challenging sometimes, so I'd also recommend uh, R.C. Sproul's commentary, his uh, book. I, as I'm going through it and I'm reading it, I'm starting to learn that I think this, is, this, this commentary he has is mostly like sermons he did on Mark, 
and then people may have took it, taken it, and I don't know if he wrote it or if someone assembled it, but it's really funny because I'll read it, and then I'll like listen to different sermons, and there's always one by R.C. Sproul that comes up, and it's literally like word for, not literally, because it's not exactly word for word, but it's almost word for word to his commentary. But anyways, little side tangent. Um, there's a lot of resources out there. Pursue scripture, pursue a plan, find a plan. Even if your heart and your motives are not right right now, if we are in the Lord and we are waiting on the Lord, they will be right, right? And that's not a testament of your own willpower, but that's a testament of God. Um, It is through Scripture that we're reminded of a hope in Christ, which is real power, right? This hope in Christ is not just something you read about, but it's power, right? We think about the hope that we have in Christ. We think about Christ resurrected, and we are then able to love people well. Um, and, and it is only through God's grace that we can understand this and respond to this. But it's through Scripture that we're reminded of this hope um, and a heart for people um, and, a, and a heart that is rooted in Scripture and a heart that loves people is going to be a heart that believes, right? So the very fundamental root of loving people well and then being in Scripture, right? And if you're in Scripture, you learn how to love people. That, that, that foundation, remember we've been working backwards through this text, is a heart that believes. Um, Mark 6, 3 through 6. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Which, just think about that for a second. Um, He could do no mighty work there except he like healed a few people. Uh, Just talks about the power of Jesus, right? Um... And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. We see people in Nazareth, people that he grew up with. Remember, 60 acres, about 500 people. Uh, It's going to be that place where if you walk into Kroger, you can't get out of the door without saying hi to like 10 people. My wife hates going to Mount Vernon with me because the entire drive through Mount Vernon is like, so my, you remember my buddy from high school, this one? He lives right there. And, and then we like go into Kroger before we go to my parents' house. And like eight people have stopped me and said hi. And um, praise God, he brought us to Columbus because no one knows me. And my head was getting so big in that town. And he humbled me. Um, no, anyways, my, my wife humbles me. So uh, I don't need to know where Travis Kiger lives. <laughs> anyways, uh, so... So we see people that know Jesus well, right? Um, And because they thought they knew Jesus, because they had typecasted him or labeled him as as carpenter, uh, they could not believe in Jesus. Uh, Because of Jesus' background, they discredit him, right? In Jewish culture, uh, a laborer is not 
you're like top um, on the on the totem pole in in regards to your career or your job. Um, so a laborer walks into the synagogue and blows them away with his teaching. He hasn't learned under a rabbi. He hasn't been to to college, right? In our te- in our sense, he hasn't studied under. Um, he hasn't studied from this seminary or that seminary or whatever. The people are are almost appalled. Or they are appalled. There's this awesome teaching happening. They can't deny it. It even says it in the text that they they're they're mind blown by how well he teaches. But instead of holding on to his teaching and believing it, they're appalled because this laborer, right, this carpenter, is teaching. Um, the word that uh, the word that kind of most adequately probably um, communicates what Christ did is, is probably laborer or like construction worker for us. Um, uh, carpenters back then would have worked with wood and stone and they would have built things. Um, and this town grew up seeing Jesus and Joseph working as these construction workers or these, these laborers, right? And, and because of this background... They could not believe, they couldn't believe that he was able to teach the way he taught. Um, A little side tangent here. Um, Our background does not dictate the grace that is given to us, right? Think about that. Your background, the way you grew up or what you do doesn't dictate your ability to receive grace. That is all God. God is the one who gives us grace. God is the one who allows the Spirit to work in our life. And so if you grew up with with a less than desirable background, or if you grew up with this amazing church-filled, gospel-loving parent background, none of that dictates your ability to receive or communicate the gospel. Right? What you do doesn't dictate your ability to receive or communicate the gospel. We are all called, as Christians, to know Scripture, like we said, to worship God, to love God, and to communicate that to people in our lives. Um, so I would encourage you to believe that a belief in Jesus is transformative. Right? Don't rule people out because you know their background. Don't rule yourself out because of your background. And, and don't rule people out because of where they're at right now. We need to believe that a belief in Jesus, a belief in the gospel is transformative. That's convicting for me because I can think of right now one person in particular that's been in my life my entire life that I should be having a lot more gospel-oriented conversations with. But because I have known him my entire life, because I've had these conversations, and the response hasn't always been the way I hoped, um, sometimes I just gloss over this or, or breeze past it. Um, but we see, we, don't, we, we really don't want to fall into that verse 4 category a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, in his own household, right? We don't want to label certain people and say, there's no way Christ could have changed that person, right? A belief in the gospel is transformative. Um, we then see that the people are offended. The Greek word for offended is uh, scandalizo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, um, but it's most... Uh, correctly translated to scandal. It's scandalous that Jesus is here teaching. Um, if you read through 
Um, I'm actually ashamed that I didn't see this. So as a history teacher, right, you know that throughout history, people are identified um, by like their father's name. Okay, so if you, if, whether it's Jewish culture or in the medieval ages or, or whatever, even like just across different religions, um, we, you were identified by like your father's name. In Jewish culture, even if your father died, you would say like, this is Jesus, son of Joseph. But here we see, this is Jesus, son of Mary. So why was it written like that in the text? Um, was it to rate, elevate the Virgin Mary? And No, we don't, we don't teach that. We don't believe that. Um, and uh, we see here, right after they say son of Mary, uh, his brother James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon uh, were all there too. So I think that if you do have any questions on that, that's totally fine. But if you are uh, working through the, um, some of the teachings from, from different places that uh, the virginity of Mary was held through Scripture, we see him referred to as the son of Mary, and then we see uh, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, right? It's okay that Christ had half-brothers and sisters. A um, little tangent there. But anyways, um, why was he introduced as the son of Mary? We don't know exactly why Mark wrote it that way, but again, just reading through Sproul's commentary, uh, there's the, a possible explanation is that the people in that town still believed Jesus was an illegitimate son um, of Mary, right? And so... Whether that's the case, or whether it's just because Jesus was this laborer who is now teaching in the synagogue, it was scandalous to them. They're offended that Jesus is teaching them there. I think we need to ask the question, is being associated with Jesus scandalous to you? Are there places in your life where you might downplay your association with Jesus because there's implications that come with being a Christian. There's beliefs that we hold as being a Christian that really are not accepted in our society today. So uh, evaluate your life and say, am I falling into the trap that the people in Nazareth fell in? And there are places where I might hide my faith in Jesus because it's scandalous or it's offensive. Right? We also uh, see that this word is actually the same word that is referred to stones that are rejected by builders back then. So this scandalizo, if there was material that they were going to use for construction and they were not going to use that because that material was flawed or, or they didn't want it, they, they used this term to describe that material, scandalizo. And this is the term that they use for Jesus. Jesus, the rejected stone, right? The rejected building material by the people of Nazareth. And if we read Psalm 118, 22 through 23, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, right? Jesus is rejected by these people, but he is the cornerstone of the church. He is the cornerstone. He is what all of Christianity, all of our hope 
is built on. He's rejected by these people. And this left those people with a judgment, right? There was judgment brought on Nazareth. Um, We see Jesus is not able to perform any works in Nazareth. There's a temptation here to think that our faith might dictate Jesus' ability to perform these works. That is not biblical, right? We do not adhere to a, if I have enough faith, Jesus will heal. Um, That's dangerous, right? Um, As someone who has a child in the NICU, I see the dangers of that. Um, I know God can heal my daughter, um, but she's not healed yet. That's okay. It's not dictated on my on my faith. Um, what we see is a judgment on this town because they do not have faith. Um, We know that Jesus works through the Spirit. In Mark 3, 22-30, we see Him cast out demons for the first time. And, and, and people are um, they're questioning the power in which He's working through. And He says, whoa, 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 be careful. You're getting into t- unforgivable territory here by blaspheming the Spirit. So we know in Mark 3, 22-30, even though Jesus has the ability... Um, to do these things while on earth, when he take, took on this human form, he works through the Spirit. And he's not able to heal. He's, well, he heals some people, but he's not able to do these miraculous works that I'm sure everyone in that region has heard of. And it is because God pulls back the Spirit from that area. There's judgment on the unbelief from the people in Nazareth. Um, Vance Havner is a preacher from the early 1900s, um, and he says, Let it never be forgotten that although we may do nothing about the word we hear, the word will do something to us. The same sun melts ice and hardens clay, and the word of God humbles or hardens the human heart. Right? Jesus comes in and he shares truth with these people. And their hearts are hardened. Um, We then see Jesus take his disciples and they go from town to town. Jesus is astonished, first off. He marvels. He knew they were... Jesus knows they're not going to believe. He's so in tune with the Father. Um, He goes to Nazareth and and he brings judgment on Nazareth, right? in, In God's... In, in, in Christ's closeness with God and God's omnipotence and omniscience, Jesus is going there and he brings judgment to Nazareth because of their unbelief. And then we see Jesus take his disciples and he leaves. Think about that imagery for a second, right? Now that literally happened, but think about that imagery. They are presented the gospel. They do not believe. Judgment is brought on them. And Jesus, with the people that do believe, leave. Why did they reject Jesus? It is because God, through the Holy Spirit, had not invaded their hearts. Right? It is because the Holy Spirit had not worked in the hearts of those people. And I think we need to ask ourselves right now, 
through the grace of God, if you do not believe, is the Spirit working? Is God using the Spirit right now to invade your heart? Because if you are ignoring this, or if you are rejecting this, or if you are being hardened to this, look at what happens. Jesus leaves with the people who believe. There's going to be a time where it is too late. There's going to be a time where just like judgment was brought on Nazareth, and Jesus left with his disciples, there will be a time where you have chosen your sin, and so Jesus leaves you with the sin that you have chosen. There will be a time when it's too late. So, hear the gospel. Understand that Christ satisfied the law. Understand that He came and He did all these things and you are now presented with the ability to accept Christ and believe. Don't wait until Jesus leaves, right? There will be a time it's too late. Respond to the Spirit and accept Him. Don't stay in Nazareth. Cool little tagline for you. Uh, If you are in Christ, if you are, if you have believed, if you have chosen Christ, um, what an awesome way to worship God by partaking in communion. Um, if you are in Christ and you have believed and you are baptized and you are part of a local church and you're in good standing with that church, um, let's worship God by taking communion. Let's reflect on the promises that we have in the gospel. Um, if you are not We just ask you not to partake right now, but take Jesus. Instead of taking communion, take Jesus, right? Don't be someone who stays in Nazareth and hardens their heart and does not believe. Take Jesus.